0: I think shortly after that, the Celtics said, "Yeah, we do have the wrong coach as our best, or, you know, <laughs> wrong coach on our team." Uh, that was one of the most iconic uh, press conference rants in sports history, uh, and I think it was iconic because he was saying something that it's hard for us to accept. Uh, we we know in our own life what he was saying was true. He hit the nail on the head with Boston. They'd been so used to winning in basketball, now they weren't. And they kept looking at him like, well, why not? Why not? Why not? He's looking at him like, because I don't have Larry Byrne, McCale, and Parrish. That's why. Uh, I got a bunch of young rookies who aren't very good right now, and I don't know what you expect out of me. And it was sort of one of those wake up calls like, you got to accept reality. You can't keep living in the past. And that's really what I'll be, what I'll be talking about uh, this morning. So far, as we've been going through this series on getting past the past, we've been talking about the bad stuff from our past, like the. The my bad stuff, stuff I've done wrong, and when I've done stuff wrong, it, it, it's tempting to go down to the place of regret, we've talk, been talking about how what God's always looking to the future, and he says, I want you to repent and move forward in the future with what's happened. Uh, we talked about the your bad stuff, and when it's stuff that's been done to me, uh, my temptation is to get angry and bitter over it, but uh, God encourages us to go down the path of forgiveness because that's the only path towards healing and health. And then lastly, we talked about what do we do when it's just bad? And when it's just bad and things happen, there's no really, I did it or you did it or anything like that. It's just that bad things happen in our life, the, the temptations to move to despair. where We think that things are never going to get better, that I'm just somehow cursed. And Scripture points us to understanding that through God there is not just a hope, but there's actually a possibility for us to have joy if we can only focus on the fact that God can use all things for good. Uh, bad things and good things can all be used for good, which gets us to this morning. Uh, Sometimes we have an issue in moving into our future because our past was so bad. Uh, But just as likely or just as possible is that we have a hard time moving into the future because the the past was so good, or at the very least, good enough. Uh, The thing about the past is it's certain, it's known. Anything in the future is uncertain, so we always resist moving into such uncertainty, and that's the struggle that the Celtics were having back then. Uh, The fact that Larry Bird wasn't walking through that door, and Newsflash Boston Neither is Tom Brady, all right? He's not walking through there anymore. Many people today are celebrating the fact that we get our first Super Bowl in like a decade or 20 years or so without Brady being there, and maybe looking forward to next year the fact that there's no chance of Brady being in it unless he can somehow be in the Super Bowl in retirement. I don't know. Knowing him, he probably will find a way. Who knows? Keep in mind, I'm also up here repping a, a jersey from my favorite team that hasn't had anybody worth rooting for since this guy played for us. As a matter of fact, He's still, I think, our number one selling jersey. is <laughs> from a quarterback who hadn't played in 20 years. That tells you where my franchise is at. I hope you're not in that same place. I'm looking forward to the day when my Dolphins can play your Redskins, or whatever you guys call yourselves nowadays. I don't know. Um, anyways, moving on. I can get hung up on that. Uh, the reality, though, is it is always hard to move into the future. Uh, we always resist moving wherever God is leading into the future because of that uncertainty, because of the the, the faith that is required into that. And, and the, there's a pattern you see in Scripture that comes up is that when, as God is calling us in the future, our tendency is to want to hang on to our past, uh, sometimes because of the difficulties we had there and we can't get past it, sometimes because it was either good or good enough. And so I was kind of thinking through all of the amazing things that God did throughout Scripture, and if you go through each and every one of them, every one of them you'll find The people that God was calling to do it didn't want to do it. They were always resisting it along the way. I mean, every great story, I mean, the first great person you read about in Scripture is Abraham. Uh, How did that all start? If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, God actually called his father to go do this. And Terah got about, he he said, I want you to go all the way over to the promised land. He gets halfway there and is like, no, I'm not going to go. I think it's good enough here. I'm not going to go any further. And so so God calls Abraham and says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to leave behind your family who's going to hold you back. And what's he do? He brings some of his family with him and then he resists everything God has in his plan all along the way. He keeps resisting, resisting, resisting. Then you get to Moses and uh, we think about how amazing Moses was. Even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, maybe you've heard at least of Moses and Moses the guy who said, let my people go. You know when God called him to go lead everybody out of Egypt? You know what he says back to God in Exodus chapter four? Um, Pardon me, Lord, but could you find someone else? That's it. That's exactly what it says. Pardon me, but could you find someone else? That's what the great and powerful, amazing Moses says. The hero of our faith. When God's first calling him to lead the people out of Egypt, his answer back was, nah, I'm not the guy. You need to find somebody else to go do this. Or he finally does lead the people out of the promised land. They part the Red Sea. All these amazing things happen. They get right up on the edge of the promised land. And what do the people say? Nah, we ain't going in. No, you you can read about it over uh, in Numbers 14. 14. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, Hey, if only we had just died in Egypt or somewhere out in the wilderness, yet you've brought us here to this land that we might get killed by in battle. Our wives and our children be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be just better if we went back to Egypt? You mean that place that you were in slavery that you've been crying out to God for year after year after year to deliver you out of? Now He finally did, and what do you want to do? You want to go back? And so He says, We should choose a leader to so take us back to Egypt. Really? So, so the promised land that God wants to bring you into, uh, which would become Israel, you don't even want to go. Okay, so then you get, finally, the next generation decides they're going to go, and it's Joshua. Joshua's going to lead the people in. You, you know what Joshua 1's all about? Moses, or, Joshua, or Joshua chapter 1's all about Larry Bird's not walking through that door. Line 1 is Moses is dead. He's not walking into the promised land with you. You've got to accept that, Joshua. And what does God keep saying to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Over and over and over again, he keeps telling him to be strong and courageous. Why do you think he's telling him to be strong and courageous? Because he's afraid and discouraged. That's why. (laughs) It's the only reason why you tell somebody to be strong and courageous, right? I mean, you go down into Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'll be with you wherever you go. And I know that's hard for you to accept because Moses is gone. But now you've got to go do this. And he was terrified to go do it. Or, you know, one of the other high points in the Old Testament is when David becomes king, and God calls David to become, you know, the backstory on that one is at the time Saul was king. And one of my favorite verses in Scripture is over in uh, 1 Samuel 16, where God calls Samuel to go anoint David as king. And God says to Samuel, how long will you mourn over Saul? He says, I've rejected him as king over Israel, so fill your horn with oil and get on your way. I'm sending you to, to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. That verse hits me uh, because there's, there's times where God's calling me to move forward yet I'm mourning over something in the past. You know, maybe because something that was so good is now over and, and Samuel had all kinds of high hopes for Saul and everything that Saul could accomplish because he had so much potential and so Saul was sort of, or Samuel's wrapped up into that. He was this project that Samuel was working on and, and eventually he could see it pay off and then it doesn't. So Samuel's kind of frustrated and discouraged over it and God's like, okay, I've moved on. Can you come with me? How long are you just going to sit there and cry over this? Can you just get up and can we move forward? Uh, and that's a message I need to hear over and over and over and over and over again. And so, of course, Samuel goes, uh, goes over there um, and he says, God, how can I go? First of all, I'm sad about the whole Saul thing. And if I go, he says, Saul's going to kill me. He's like, I don't want to go. I'm afraid to go. And then it's funny. He gets there and, and Samuel tells, Dave, or tells Jesse, one of your sons is going to become king. And, and Jesse resists it. Well, Certainly one of my sons will become, become king, but not David. We're not even going to invite David to the party. All along the way, we always resist wherever it is that God's leading. Uh, go over to the New Testament. First time Jesus says, all right, here's the plan. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. That's the plan. God sent me here uh, to come to share the message of good news, but ultimately the plan of salvation is that I'm going to die on your behalf. And so he tells them this in, in Matthew chapter 16. He says, from that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. That's the plan, guys. What's Peter say? Spokesperson from the disciples? Never, Lord. This should never happen to you. And there's that famous line where he says, get behind me, Satan. For you don't have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So there he is, right from the very beginning, finding resistance to the plan of God right from his own inner circle. And then, of course, Jesus does die on the cross, rises from the dead, but do the religious leadership accept it? No. They're always resisting that this could possibly be, have anything to do with God. And so the, 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 the one phrase I want, you to, I want to make sure you pull out of this is Stephen gets up and, he, and he's brought before the religious leaders uh, to give a testimony about why it is that you're talking about Jesus. And what Stephen does at the end of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7 of the book of Acts, he gives a whole history of Israel, kind of the stuff I was just bringing out, how he's going through all of Israel. Every single time God wants to do something, you guys resist it. He says, even all these prophets you lift up, like Moses and all these other prophets that you lift up on high and think they're just all these great people, these great men of God, every single one of them, you guys resisted where God was leading you through them. When Jeremiah tried to lead you, you resisted him. When Isaiah tried to lead you, you resisted him. Uh, When when God was using Moses, you resisted him. We already talked about that one. Over and over, that's that's your whole pattern. And he summarizes up everything he's been saying to them in Acts chapter seven, verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, emotionally and intellectually, you're not with God. You say you're a Christian, you say you're following God, but emotionally and and mentally, you don't want to follow after God. He says, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. In other words, every time God's Spirit is leading you to go somewhere, every time he's trying to lead you into somewhere new, every single time you resist it. And then he says sort of sarcastically, was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? All these people you lift up, you know, oh, Moses, Moses, was there ever a prophet you you didn't go after? He says, you even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him too. In other words, he says, everybody who was talking about Jesus coming, you persecuted them, and now that Jesus has come, you persecuted him and killed him. <coughs> he says, you guys are the ones who have received the law that was given to the angels. You just haven't obeyed it. His whole point is you always resist wherever it is that God's going. But it didn't stop with the religious leadership. Look at the disciples. It's almost comical what happens. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives his final words before he like ascends up into heaven. And he says to them, he says, you guys are going to receive the the power of the Holy Spirit when he's going to come on you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He always leads you out. He always leads you forward. He says, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. You're here in Jerusalem right now. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Keep in mind, where was the places? Jerusalem, then Judea, which is the biggest surrounding area, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, right? So we're going to go, right? That's the plan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. All right. I want you to go, all right? All right, I'm leaving, go. Message, final message is where? Go. Right after he leaves, it says they're all looking up into the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him and said, uh, Men in Galilee, why are you all still here? Read it, look it up. Look it up in Acts chapter one. It's like, Jesus is like, all right, go. And they're like, they just, they don't go anywhere. It's like, no, no, you're supposed to go. And then so, so the angel has to come to tell the disciples, no, 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 Leave. Sort of like the end of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember the end end credits of that? What are y'all still doing here? It's over. Leave. Get out of here. Go. He said go. (coughs) So he tells him to leave. All right, so go over to Acts chapter eight. Right after Stephen gives that speech where he's looking at the religious leaders and says, you stiff-necked people, you never follow after God. What do you think they did to him right after that? They didn't like that message. They killed him. They didn't like that message any more than they liked Rick Pitino saying, Larry Bird ain't walking through that door, right? They they axed that coach too, right? So they get rid of Stephen. Right after that, it says this, on that day, widespread persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, so this all happened in Jerusalem, and most believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout, anybody want to guess where they were scattered? Through Judea and Samaria. Did you get this? Jesus said, I want you to go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the rest of the earth. Where did they go? Well, first nowhere until an angel said, go, at least to Jerusalem. So it's after that that then Peter gets up and he preaches on the day of Pentecost, like you know, a couple thousand people get saved, but they all stay right there in Jerusalem. And they don't go anywhere. So what does God allow to happen? He allowed persecution to break out because, listen, if you're not going to go, sometimes I'm going to make you go. And so persecution breaks out, and so all these Christians who won't go anywhere other than Jerusalem are then forced by persecution, against their will, if you will, into where? judea and samaria the very place god wanted them to go on their own (coughs) but notice it says except the apostles i thought that was kind of interesting well if you read through a little bit more into the book of acts you've got at this point you got 11 of the disciples who are still there and you're like i think i thought there were 12 disciples well what happened to one of them anybody know anybody anybody where did that other guy go anybody what yeah, Judas. Judas was the other disciple, so in other words, they're missing one, right? So they're supposed to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. So far, they ain't even left Jerusalem. Well, along comes this guy named Paul. Interestingly enough, he actually shows up right between that passage I mentioned from Stephen and right between that passage of the persecution. Who do you think's leading the persecution? This guy named, ultimately named Paul, right? He's the one who's driving all the people out of Jerusalem. So God's using this guy to drive all the people out of Jerusalem, and the apostles still won't leave Jerusalem, you know what God ends up doing? He ends up converting Paul to become one of the apostles, calls him personally to be the 12th, 12th, 12th disciple, to fill that spot, right? So Paul then, as you can imagine, the disciples aren't too happy about this guy named Paul being joined to the crew, right? The very guy who just ran everybody out of town, now he's going to be one of the crew, they're not too excited about it. So it takes him a little while to warm up to the idea. So Paul then kind of goes back, and he tell, he's telling the Galatian church about how all this went down and eventually, how eventually they warmed up to him. And so he says, you know, Peter, James, John, these esteemed pillars, well, eventually they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Eventually they accepted me in. Took them a while, they finally accepted me in. When they recognized the grace had been given when they finally realized that Jesus Christ had come to me and called me personally, just like he would called all of them, they finally accepted me. This is Galatians chapter two, and he says this. So he says, they, uh, so we all agreed. They'll go to the Jews, I'll go to the Gentiles. Where do the Jews live? primarily in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Where do the Gentiles live? The rest of the earth. So P- Paul's basically saying, okay, what did Jesus say? We're gonna go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, rest of the earth. All right, what part of the world do you guys wanna take? Oh, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll stick right here. Okay, you guys just want this one little country right here? Okay, I'll take all the rest of them. Now, is it any wonder why most of the New Testament is written by, the, by Paul? I don't know of any books written by Bartholomew or Thaddeus, Y'all are thinking, who's Bartholomew and Thaddeus? Exactly. I'm sure they did a lot of amazing things. I know that scriptures say they're going to sit on 12 12 thrones. Eventually, ultimately, one day I'm probably going to have to answer for busting on them. So Stephen, about this thing you said on Super Bowl Sunday, (laughs) Thaddeus, would you like to chime in? No, you take it, Bartholomew. Um, I'm sure they did amazing things. However, what we have recorded for us in the Bible for all time are the things that Paul did going to the rest of the world. Most of you your New Testament is letters that Paul wrote when he was going to the rest of the world. What's my point? Every time God calls us somewhere, we resist. Again and again and again, we resist everywhere God wants us to go. And I'll tell you, even if you look at Paul's story, he resists where God wants him to go. God keeps on wanting him to go to Rome, and he won't go. If you read through the book of Acts, God keeps on wanting him to go to Rome, and he won't go, and he won't go, and he won't go. He wants to go back to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem's going through a famine, so Paul can come into town because he's been taking up this offering uh, from all these churches that they didn't think you know, could even have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he wants to kind of be the hero to walk in and say, All these people you didn't think could have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not only did they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they, they've collected all this money to help you guys out. Huh? How about that? You know what happens to him when he gets to Jerusalem? He gets arrested, put on a prison ship, and guess where he ultimately gets sent? Rome. You can either go where God wants you to go happily. Or you can resist and by persecution or by arrest end up getting sent to the same place. When God wants you somewhere, eventually he's going to get you there. But here's another principle true too. If ultimately you just or stubbornly won't go, eventually he'll find somebody else. He can even find somebody like Paul to go to the rest of the world. If you won't, I'll find somebody else who will. They'll receive the blessing and you're going to miss out. That's the principle we see over and over and over again in Scripture and you won't go because it's been so good, or at least it's been good enough, God says, could you just come with me? There's so much more beyond. There's so much more beyond. And you'll see that the center of Christianity moves from Jerusalem to Antioch to Rome. Why? Because God's always going to go where there's people willing to go and follow after him. Every single time it happens again and again. So um, now, second thing I want to bring up to understand where I'm going to go next is so often in these stories that I've been reading about, these amazing things that God does, after these things happen, the people will write songs about it. Okay? When something amazing happens, people write a song about it. Kind of like in the same way in our life, something amazing happens, people write a song about it. Um, you know, we, our Star Spangled Banner, what was that all about? Anybody? War of 1812, right there right there in Baltimore Harbor. You know, look in there, the flag's still there on Fort McHenry the next morning. So it writes a song about the fact that our flag was still there, and you know, we, we sing about that. Uh, every time we, we play ball right uh, we, we remember that time well after battles or amazing things that god would do would happen, they would sing about them so like in exodus chapter 17 right after moses leads people to the red sea they're just so in awe and wow over what that happened over what just had happened they sing this song about how the horse and riders uh, of the chariots and everything were thrown into the sea um, i'm gonna do a little excerpt of it it says the lord is my strength he's my defense he's become my salvation and he's the one who delivered us just now He's my God. He's my father. I will praise him. I'll exalt him. He's a warrior. The Lord's his name. Pharaoh's chariots and all of his army have been hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers have now drowned into the Red Sea. This whole, he writes this whole song about it, right? Uh, Judges chapter 5 is another cool story. Uh, God calls this guy named Barak to, to rise up and to deliver the people. Brock's all scared, he doesn't want to go. Why? Because we're always scared to go and do whatever God wants us to do. So this lady named Deborah comes along, she's like, hey, you really gotta do this. God's calling you. He promised you you'll be faithful you'll be you'll be successful in this. I'll I'll even back you up on this. He's like, No, no, I can't go. I'm too scared to go. So Deborah's like, fine, if you're not man enough to do it, I will. So she leads the people out there and she goes, but let it be known, credit's gonna go to me, not to you if you won't do it. Why? Because what's that principle? We're scared to do what God wants us to do, and if we won't do it, he'll find somebody else. Right? So Deborah, after the whole thing, she sings this song about this victory. It's like, oh, you who ride on white donkeys, who saddle up the blankets, who consider the voice of the singers in watering places, they recite the victories of the Lord. These people go into the Lord, and they went down to the city gates and said, wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, break out in song. this whole victory song about everything that just happened was victory. There's another one that um, was sung over uh, at 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. Uh, this is when David, uh, who was a shepherd boy, he's now gone to the big city and he's there uh, living in uh, Saul's palace. He ultimately becomes one of Saul's leading generals uh, in Saul's army. And they began to sing a song about all these things that David was doing, going out and fight, fighting on behalf of the kingdom. And it so says, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. That wasn't a song the king really liked a whole lot. As a matter of fact, he didn't like that song so much that he kick David out of the kingdom over that song that was being sung about David's uh, war exploits. David would not sing that song. Everybody else was singing about him. And maybe you've heard about the song from the Christmas story over in Luke chapter 1 after the angel comes to Mary. Remember Mary breaks out in song. You know, my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in the Lord that He's uh, my God, my Savior, for He's been mindful of me, uh, of the humble state of His servant from now on. Generations will call me blessed. So she sings about... What I'm getting at is over and over again in Scripture, couple things you'll see. Number one is we always resist wherever God's leading us to go. When we finally go, amazing things happen and we sing songs about it. Do you get that principle? That's that's a a theme I want you to see all throughout scripture. All right. So you have to understand that to understand where I want to go next. Several times in scripture, at least nine, where it says outright and several other times refers to it, you'll see God make this statement where he says, I want you to sing a new song. I want you to sing a new song. Uh, that's why you will notice we, we sing a lot of new songs. Sometimes people come to me and be like, why do we always keep doing, I don't like these new songs. Why, can we go, go back, can we go back and sing the old songs that I grew up with? I say, no, we can't. Why? Because God doesn't like those anymore. <laughs> Read right here. He wants the new songs. He's tired of that playlist. It's not exactly what he's saying. It kind of is, only by a roundabout place. Uh, What is it really? What he's saying is this: is we would sing songs about the things that God did. We were scared to death to do it. Then God brought us through it. We finally you know went there. Either either begrudgingly we did it, willingly we did it. Eventually we did it. Whatever the story was, eventually it happened, and it was this crazy ride. And it was scary, and it was terrifying. The armies was coming down on us. We had the Red Sea before us. We didn't know how we were gonna get out of this. Uh, we were terrified, but oh my gosh, God split the sea. We went through it. It was amazing, and we're singing songs about it to this day. And God says, you know, I like those songs, but I want you to sing also a, a new song. I don't want the only song that you sing to be the song about what I did way back then. I, I, I want you to come with me. I wanna write some new material Where I want to take you is going to be the stuff of the new song that we're going to sing. I I don't want you to keep on singing about what what, what I did in your life 10, 20 years ago. I don't want you to sing about the songs of when the church first started. I I don't want you to be singing songs about what you did on that mission trip back when you were a kid. I don't want that to be the only story you have about your relationship with me. Can you come with me and let us write some new music together? I want you to sing a new song. A couple of those passages, um, one of them is in Psalm chapter 40. Now, I mentioned before that uh, David was just a shepherd when he was called by God to become the next king, was anointed. Uh, it, it didn't go so easy for him, as, as I've already kind of mentioned. He goes into the palace, he goes from the, from the fields of the shepherding out uh, into the big city, and eventually rises up to be one of the lead generals under Saul's army, only to have people sing songs about him, Saul to get really jealous and banish him from the city, and then eventually try to take his life. And it's not until many years later that he actually does get anointed to fully become king. And he says this in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of a slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. Yeah, it was fun singing that song about how Saul's killed a thousand and I've killed my ten thousands and i got to mention I didn't come up with a song, but I love singing it. <laughs> I love listening to it. It's one of my favorites. He says, but I got to tell you what, God's now put a new song in my heart. A hymn of praise to our God. For many will see him and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. A couple things about that. One, he's saying, you know, I followed God down this difficult path. It started with me killing Goliath. I thought everything was gonna work out great. It didn't. Everything went really bad south. But I kept after him. I kept after him. I kept following after God. Made some mistakes along the way, but I never gave up. And God delivered me through it. And now I've got this new song to sing about what God's done me. You know, I could have been singing about those Goliath songs. Those things could have gone with me the rest of my life. I could have been singing those songs about my early days uh, in Saul's army the rest of my life. That would have been enough to carry me. But I continue to follow after God. We wrote some new music together and it's amazing what God has done now. Second thing I want you to pick up on is when he says, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Why? Because of this new song you're singing. So oftentimes we ask God these questions of why, 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 why. We're always asking the question in terms of, what does this mean for me? Why did this happen to me? And when your only frame of reference is thinking that the songs and the music and the stories that God wants to write about your life have to do with you, sometimes you might miss it altogether. Because sometimes your story and your song isn't just about you, it's about somebody else too. And so David says, I've got this new song to sing and this song that I'm singing about what God's done in my life is the very reason why many people We'll have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that will last for all eternity. That's what he's saying there in Old Testament language. We'll see and fear the Lord and place their trust in him. That's that's Old Testament synonymous language with we'll have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that will last for all eternity. And so all this time I'm asking God, why, why, why did you let all this happen to me? Someday God's gonna point out to you and hopefully you'll see it before then. Because this was our song together, look at all these people who've now heard your song, heard what's happened in your life, and now they've placed their faith in me because you went down that path. Another one I wanna to read to you is um, from the book of Isaiah. Now, I gotta give you some backstory for Isaiah. Uh, everything from Isaiah 40 on is in the context of them, sort of the end period of their captivity. All right, 30 seconds of Old Testament history so you understand what I'm talking about there. The reason why I say that is because until I went to seminary, I didn't understand Old Testament history, so if somebody would say the captivity, I'd be like, whatever. It didn't mean anything to me, but a little bit of Old Testament history. So Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They eventually take the Promised Land. Then there's the period of the Judges. That's where the whole Deborah story comes about. Eventually, Saul becomes their king. After Saul, David becomes king. The king is amazing. Uh, It's it's as big as it ever was. Solomon is then the richest king who's ever lived after that. Uh, And then after Solomon, Solomon has an idiot son named Rehoboam. No other way to say it. Rehoboam is cocky. He's arrogant. ends up splitting the kingdom in half, okay? From that point on, you had this northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Everything in the northern kingdom was bad. Nothing ever good happened up there, pretty much. The southern kingdom, some high points, but overall, a lot of rough stuff, too. Eventually, God judges the northern kingdom first, and he punishes them, and then eventually he punishes the southern kingdom. When he punishes the southern kingdom, they're taken away into captivity into a foreign land. So when I talk about captivity, that's what we're talking about. Now, the reason why they're taken off into captivity is because of their sin. Because they messed up, the whole nation did, and he takes them off into captivity. He promises them, though, I'm going to bring you back one day. That's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. Right after they're taken to captivity, he says, listen, it's going to last for 70 years, so go ahead and plant some gardens, build some houses. You're going to be here for a while, but trust me, I'm going to bring you out. I know my plans for you. I have plans for it with a great future. Uh, I still got hope. You know, you can have hope in the great future that I've got for you. Uh, that's going to happen. When you get to Isaiah 40, he's talking about, we're getting to the end of that period of 70 years where God's about to, in the time of captivity, and bring them back. But when you've been in captivity for 70 years, it's hard to hold on to hope that long, isn't it? Like, how long does your hope last for? Do you have 70 years worth of hope? Kind of hard, right? When you get to chapter, when you get to Isaiah 40, it's where God's announcing, listen, I want you to keep this hope alive. And so he says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, and that she's received from the Lord hand double for all her sins. What he's saying, listen, is like, like, like come, here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. The punishment's over. It's done. You've paid for it. Let's move on. Uh, it, it, this is the concept why, when my kids were young, uh, we, would have, we would go into the bathroom to have that talk, you know? You know, when we go to the bathroom, it's not a really good talk, right? If we go in the bathroom, we'd have a talk about what happened. There'd be, oftentimes, a spanking as a consequence after the spanking came a hug, and I always give them this message. It's over with. It's done with. When we walk out of here, this is over with. Daddy's not mad, not upset. You know, we, we, we paid for what happened. That's what the spanking was all about. And we move forward. Daddy's not mad. We've moved on. I wanted them to understand this, un, this concept that once it's been paid for, it's done with. Once sin's been paid for, it's done with. Your sin, by the way, has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's been paid for. It's done with. Move on. So God's coming. He's like, Come here, come here, come here, come here. And he's giving them a hug and he's saying, Listen, the captivity period is just about over. Your sins have been paid for. I'm going to restore you. And so everything after that's all about this. And he says, You know, right now, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord to make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley be raised up, every mountain be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places will be made plain. Uh, and the glory of the Lord be re- will be revealed. And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now some of you might be thinking, doesn't John the Baptist say that? He does. There's a lot of parallels of this season with what happens with Jesus Christ coming. What God's saying is, you've been in captivity, and I'm going to bring you out of it. What is the message of Jesus Christ? We've been in captivity to our sin for all these years, and God is sending Jesus Christ to bring us out of it. There's a lot of parallels you're going to see in the New Testament from this section. And so... That's Isaiah 40. He begins this whole thing that goes for chapter, 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 after chapter through this. And then you get Isaiah uh, 42. like two, two chapters later. He says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm not going to yield my glory to another. So don't be praising idols for what I'm about to do. See, the former things have taken place and I declare new things are coming. Before they even spring into being, I'm going to announce them to you. So sing to the Lord a new song his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that's in it, all you islands and all you who live in them. What he's saying is this, I haven't brought you out of captivity yet, but you can start, start the band playing. Get the band going. Even though it hasn't happened yet, you might as well start singing about it because it's already in the works and it's already starting to happen. It's this question of, can you sing a new song before God's even done it based on your faith of what he will do? He's saying strike up the band. It's sort of like You ever have those moments? I mean, one of the things, the reason why I'm glad Tom Brady's gone, I'm just gonna be honest with you, right? If you were playing against him and you left him a minute on the clock, are you feeling good about your lead? You might as well just go ahead and strike up the band and get them queued up because you know what's coming, right? And that's what he's saying, cue the band. We're going down to score. You know what's coming. So just go ahead and start singing now, right? Like, how many times did you listen to those annoying Patriots fan go, ah, oh, too much time's left, too much time's left, and you don't even bother talking trash eventually, right? You don't be like, no, no, we're winning, though. What's the point? You know what's coming? So Isaiah 43, the next chapter, he says, this is what the Lord says. Remember the same one who made the highway through the sea? Remember that song you guys were singing back in Exodus 17? Remember those songs you were singing? I want you to sing a new song about what I'm about to do right now. So he says, forget the former things and don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing, and right now it's springing up. Can you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wastelands. Can you begin to see the evidence of what it is that I'm about to do? And then in chapter 44, it just continues on. This whole, this whole thing's all this one, 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 one speech from God. He says, so sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord's done this. Shout aloud the earth beneath Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, you trees. All the Lord has redeemed Israel. He displays his glory throughout Israel. Now here's the thing. Nothing's happened yet. And God says, basically, sing out. All of creation's been singing my praises. Will you join with them, even though it hasn't happened yet? Can you trust me so much for the future, you can sing for joy right now, before I'm even about to do it? Can you sing a new song for what season is about to come, even before that season comes? So just to recap, the story of our life is what Stephen says to the religious leaders. We're stiff-necked. Although we say we have a relationship with God, emotionally and intellectually, we struggle to follow him every step of the way. Sometimes we go kicking and screaming. Sometimes we go against our will. That's the story of our people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in our own lives. But every time God pulls us somewhere, we look back and go, wow, that was amazing. So can we go write some new music together? Can you begin to sing the tune before the drive even starts? We're at the commercial break right before the final drive. Your team's down. But can you trust who it is I've got in the game right now? Can you trust me that I'm the one doing this? Look at everything I've done over my track record. Can you not trust this is gonna come out in our favor? Would you want us to close our time in prayer? Father, I thank you for your grace over our lives, that regardless of our past, whether it's been filled with many bad things from our own doing, or that's been done to us, or that's just happened in life, we're still here, so you've still got a new song for us to sing. Fathers of us, Lord, we're still tempted to live on the glory of the past, and the stories of everything you've already done. But Father, may we trust you to give us something to sing about in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.